Uh, I'd like to introduce to you today, we have a, a guest preacher, um, although I'm not sure at this point, I mean, as far as the introduction is concerned, uh, James Grant has been with us a, a good bit during our transition, and, and um, I'm truly grateful for uh, the opportunity to have somebody like James Grant in the area who's willing uh, to bless us by opening up God's Word to us. And so, James, thank you for being with us, uh, and look forward to hearing uh, what God would have to say through you today. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having us back again. We always enjoy visiting with you. I'll be here this Sunday and next Sunday. So this is uh, part one of a two-part series on 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16, actually. So that's the text that we'll be reading from this morning. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now at this time to ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to the word of your truth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would send your spirit upon this message and the hearers so that we might not only hear what your word says, but it might transform us and change us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Second Timothy is one of my favorite uh, books It is something of a last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. We consider it his last letter right before he eventually is killed, martyred for the faith. And it's one of his most personal letters. Paul is in jail, probably in Rome, coming near the end of his journey in this world. And as is the case, whenever you face a transitionary point in your life, you're reflecting upon what's been and where things are going. You've all probably had experiences of that in your life. If you have children, birthdays or graduations, when you, in fact, face certain moments in your life. And we tend to be very personal and emotional about that, which is completely appropriate. Well, Paul writes this last letter has a very personal letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he's writing this letter to encourage Timothy to be faithful. We know from his first letter to Timothy that Timothy seems to have been struggling with some things at the church or some things in his own personal life, I'm not sure. And so Paul, in this letter, outlines for him several things to be mindful of and to watch. And as in, in, in 2 Timothy, you'll notice, if you back up to chapter 1, in fact, I want you to get a sense of some of the stuff Paul's saying. In chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 8, Paul actually asks, tells Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, nor of him, his prisoner, but to share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In fact, Multiple times in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed. You look at verse 12, Paul talks about how he is suffering, but I'm not ashamed, Paul says, for I know whom I have believed. 
Timothy obviously is facing some experiences in his life that Paul is worried about. If he's highlighting the fact Timothy is struggling and ashamed, possibly ashamed or don't be ashamed. And so Paul says in verse 13, follow this pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then again, chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. One of the dynamics of this book, as we get to the passage we're going to look at, is this notion, as Jesus said, of picking up your cross and following Christ. This notion of suffering that one of the central components of the faith involves suffering. You will learn some things in the life of faith when you are suffering that you would never have learned otherwise. There is something about the dynamic of suffering that is the crucible in which the life of faith grows and matures, that we learn in those moments that we would not have learned otherwise. And so what I would like for us to do this morning and next Sunday is look at one of these structures, the structure that Paul gives Timothy in the life of faith, how he articulates this life of faith in the midst of the suffering and trials that we go through. Because when Paul tells Timothy to follow him, to be mindful of him, he's saying several things that we need to be mindful of. For example, if you you look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, Right before we get to the passage that I read and that we're going to uh, use as our grid, Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that have happened to me. Now, when Paul views the Christian life, he views it from a big picture perspective for all of these things. All of these things are going into making him the person that God, that Christ intends for Paul to be. And Paul wants Timothy to get that. We are often inclined to say, here's how we're going to grow in the faith. I'm going to teach you something from this pulpit. We're going to call it doctrine. And if you get it right in your head, then off you go. When in fact, Paul says, don't just follow my teaching, follow my conduct, follow my aim in life, follow my faith, follow my patience, my love. Paul outlines for Timothy, when he wants him to understand the life of faith, he outlines virtues. He outlines a pattern of life. And so I think some of Paul's perspective of this comes from this structure that we're going to look at in verse 16. The life of faith, what do we need to grow? Notice verse 16, when he talks about Scripture being breathed out by God and is profitable for four things. It's these four things that I want to highlight as we look this morning and next week at what Paul is saying. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Teaching, Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness is the way that ESV translates it. Now, these fall into two categories. So we're going to take just a moment and focus in on this passage and divide it up and explain it. The first two, teaching and reproof, 
are dynamics of the faith in terms of what you believe. This is why if you just read it in the English language, you may think, well, what's the difference between reproof and correction? There is a difference for Paul. When Paul writes this, teaching and reproof involve doctrine, let's say. Correction and training in righteousness involve life. In other words, teaching and reproof involve those areas in what you believe, and correction and training in righteousness involve those areas in how you should live. Now, I've often heard, and it can very easily be divided this way when you look at certain passages of Scripture, that we need to understand what Paul says about doctrine, and then we need to understand what he says about life. And sometimes you'll find whole books divided like that, like Ephesians. Some people take Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. There are six chapters in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is talking primarily about doctrine, what you should believe, and then 4, 5, and 6 is life. That's a helpful tool when you're teaching. That's a helpful tool for you to categorize these things, and Paul does it here in verse 16. But in reality, those things merge so much in life. If I were talking to you one-on-one and asking you about your own growth right now, we would be mixing back and forth between doctrine and life constantly. They're not that easily separated in your life. But in order to understand what the Bible says and how the Bible instructs us, we separate them out for this purpose, to understand that. So, teaching involves the doctrine you believe. We're going to say in just a moment, I think it's the Nicene Creed that you have in here, isn't it? Yeah, the Apostles' Creed. In just a moment, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed. It's a positive statement about what we believe. So before we come to the communion table, the table of our Lord, we say, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in this. That's where we get the notion of credo, creed for credo. I believe. That's what teaching is. Paul takes a great deal of time to instruct us on certain things to believe. Reproof is the correction of error. To reprove is not, Paul's not talking with reproof. That word is not moving into an ethical realm. He's primarily talking about how we believe. Reproof is the refuting of errors. In the early church, they called them heresies. The lies we believe about God or ourselves. Correction moves into a moral realm, an ethical realm. What not to do. This is what you shouldn't do, correcting bad behavior. And then training in righteousness is what you should do. Here's a list of things that we have in Scripture. Ten Commandments. Both list things we shouldn't do and things we should do. The Beatitudes, very similar. So what I want us to do this morning is look at the first two components, teaching and reproof, and then next Sunday, the next two. So we'll divide it into creed, what you believe, teaching and reproof, and then conduct, how you live correction, and training in righteousness. Part of the reason I'm doing this, in a couple of weeks, I'll be doing the Covenant Presbytery Youth Retreat. And um, this is the theme passage for that retreat. 
when I worked with the Daniel, who is heading this up, we came up with this passage because it provides a grid and a reminder about this big picture view of the Christian faith, which I think is helpful for all of us, especially teenagers. I don't know why I highlight teenagers. probably really helpful for me, too. And so in doing that, I'm going to, with them, do what a little bit of what we'll do next week is focus on the correction and training in righteousness because I'm of the opinion that we, we don't think very well about virtue and vice in the Reformed Church. We don't think clearly about the sins that so easily entangle us, as the book of Hebrews says, and that there are certain sins, according to the history of the church, that are root sins. And I think when we get to those, that correction and training in righteousness is dealing with that level. So we'll look at that next week. This week, we'll look at teaching and reproof. The most obvious example of teaching, as I said a moment ago, is something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechisms. In fact, to highlight how accurate the catechism is, what do the scriptures principally teach, what man is to believe about God, and what duty God requires of man. It is this category of doctrine and life. And so what are the areas in which we believe or we need to correct some of those beliefs? So let me just talk practically for a few moments about some of these doctrines that we come to believe that help us in the course of our life. I'll never forget stumbling upon what we call Reformed theology or Calvinism when I was in college. I grew up in a church that didn't highlight the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. And so in the course of coming to it, I was reading a book by Mike Horton called, titled Putting Amazing Back into Grace that a close pastor friend had given me. I was probably 18 or 19 at the time. I thought he gave me the book and warned me about Calvinism when he handed it to me because I went off and thought, well, I'll never be a Calvinist. I'll not, I'll not go down that road. Then I start reading this book by Mike Horton, which is basically a book on Calvinism, and I thought, why did he give me this book? This makes no sense. He just warned me about these things. And so I was in college. I didn't see him for about a month after that. I remember one weekend I was sick. I stayed in, in my room, and I read through the whole thing. And I thought, how am I going to go back? I wrestled with it, and I thought, how am I going to go back to this man that I respected and tell him, I read this book and I agree with everything he said. (laughs) And so in the providence of God, it was a week before I saw him, a month before I saw him, and so I had wrestled with it and really thought I was standing up to someone who I considered a mentor and was going to explain to him why this is true. And I go, I read that book, and I... I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm a Calvinist, I think. I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand why you gave it to me. He goes, oh, I agree with him too. I just wanted you to be warned about the dangers of these things. And I thought that was unbelievable that I spent all this time worried about what he was saying and how I was going to have to address when I came back to him. And he believed it anyway. I look at that in the providence of God that if he t- would have told me, oh, I agree with this, I might have just swallowed it and went on. But there was a a time of wrestling with something like that. And I'll never forget the change in my life when I realized God's in control of everything. That God's in control into the smallest 
aspect of existence. R.C. Sproul has that famous statement where he says there's not one atom, one molecule. It's a maverick molecule apart from God's providential control or the universe wouldn't exist. And it's fascinating to me, the further science goes in research, the more it affirms that this universe holds together that in that way. The book of Hebrews says it is by the word of Christ that the universe holds together. So in understanding the providence of God, it was an amazing moment to realize that God's in control when I lock my keys in the car. And I need to take a deep breath because it'll be okay. God has a bigger purpose. I also learned in the process of some of these doctrines that Scripture has a very important emphasis upon grace. Now, we can say that, right? You can drive down the road and see churches with the name grace in it. (laughs) How often is it the case that the behavior in the life of the church is filled with grace and love? Every Christian knows grace is fundamental, and yet we struggle so deeply to engage with each other in a gracious way. For all kinds of reasons we'll look at next week that's bound up in our hearts of pride and anger and control. But that notion of grace, when you understand that God has taken care of it all, When the doctrine of justification by faith alone and imputed righteousness of Christ became real to me, it was in one of those moments, again, when I was in college, and I was thinking on my life, and I thought, I'm in such trouble because I have really blown it. I'm looking at my life, and I remember the preacher saying from the pulpit, if you don't repent of every individual sin, you're not going to be forgiven. And I left that service and I thought, I am never going to make it to heaven. I can't remember every individual sin I ever committed. And I don't even remember the ones I don't remember. So how am I ever going to confess every single individual sin? I was in a Baptist church that was a very revivalistic Baptist church that was having revival. And of course, I was a teenager at this time, and hopefully I'm not as arrogant as I was back then, or pride or full or any of those things, though one can hope. And so I went to him and I said, I don't understand on this revival sheet that you're handing out to everyone in the church how I'm supposed to confess all my sins. And it was truly grieving me. This was not some teenager who was trying to play around with the preacher, which is what he thought I was doing. And I'm like, I don't have any idea how to do this, like truly. And he said, well, you pray and ask the Lord to open your eyes to these things. And I said, I've been praying for a long time. And I'm still driving down the road and think, oh, I lost my temper at that football game. I need to confess that sin. And I don't think I confessed it because I thought I was righteous when I lost my temper that time. (laughs) And so I tell him this. And 
He says, no, I've seen it. I've seen people come down to the altar and the Holy Spirit move and they confess their sins for the next minute or so and they get it all out. I say, I'm not going to get it all out in the next minute or so. It's not going to happen that way. Now, of course, I'm the teenager talking to the 30-something-year-old pastor and he's getting very upset at me because I'm not following the mold of revival that we're supposed to have. So I go off and I try to find an answer to this. And it it comes at the same time the Calvinism comes because in Mike Horton's book, he has a chapter on imputed righteousness. And I had no idea, no one had ever told me that all of my sins were laid on Christ. I know we sing that song, It Is Well With My Soul. Not in part, but the whole, all of them. But growing up, all I had in my mind was one day I'm going to stand in front of God and there's this movie screen going to come down and show all my sins that I didn't confess. Or maybe if I haven't been very good, maybe all of them. And then I discover justification by faith alone and imputed righteousness of Christ. And that not only did Christ die in my place, took all my sins on him, but in that act of redemption... There was an exchange that took place. He took my sins, but in exchange for my sins, he gave me his perfect spotless life. And I've never been the same since then because that's grace. Now, I don't always live that way. But to understand that means at any point in your life, when you're trying to obey God and follow Jesus and do the right thing, and love people, none of those things change God's opinion of you. None of those things change your status before God because that's taken care of because of Jesus. And so if you're accepted, then your outlook on life should be completely different. So see, those are a couple of the practical ways in which understanding doctrine filters its way down through the course of your life so that you see things differently. So not only do we have this teaching that certainly does involve the the books that we get and the studies we do on the doctrine of God and the Trinity, those are important things. But the reproof, the correction of things, not only involves searching out heresy, which sometimes reform types love to do, and, and find all the problems with someone else's doctrine. I went through a phase uh, like that in college and was quite miserable to be around because everything you said had some kind of doctoral problem with it. In seminary, we called that the cage phase when you should be caged up as a young Calvinist thinking you had to correct everybody that said something wrong. So in the midst of that, when you learn the truth, you also have to deal with error. But that doesn't mean that you have to go correct somebody every time they speak up. The place where it starts is in your own heart. So there are practical things. There are lies that we believe. There are certainly doctrinal dynamics. I mean, the, in 2014, Ligonier Ministries asked Lifeway, research, uh, sur- uh, Lifeway to do a research survey And the survey was conducted where almost all evangelicals, conservative Christians basically, say they believe in the Trinity, 96%, and that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, which are key doctrinal points. But 
nearly a quarter of them in this survey, 22%, said that God the Father is more divine than Jesus. You go, I think we have failed at some kind of doctrinal point on that. And so as you go on, you find out that even though they may believe in the Trinity in this survey, more than half of them, 51% of them, said the Holy Spirit was a force and not a personal being. That comes directly from New Age spirituality on the TV. Because in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, he's a person who's here with us right now, who takes us and ushers up us into the presence of God to worship God truly. And so there are elements of that that we need to know and understand, which is why we have the catechism. I've already mentioned some of the practical aspects in terms of my own life with justification and the providence of God. Let, let me end with, with this one. Um, in terms of correcting false beliefs. And I want to piggyback on the story I just told about trying to repent of my sins. I went through that cycle for a while. And I'll have to tell you, it didn't just end whenever I understood imputed righteousness. Although I received a great deal of grace and peace after that, The issue of repentance has been a lifelong struggle for me. I would tell you right now, in my life right now, understanding repentance is still one of the fundamental aspects of my Christian faith. Now, part of that reason is you hear all kinds of different things about what repentance means, right? So so with faith, this trust in God that we have, and repentance, which... as as a base meaning, means to turn away. So you're turning away from your sin. Those two are the hinges on which we're going to look next week in terms of correction and training in righteousness. Because I'm convinced in the Christian life that the element of faith and repentance have to go together. So if you're struggling with a particular sin, and let's say we look next week at the issue of anger, and you have a problem with anger, don't we all? And you struggle with that particular sin. Not only do you have to repent of that sin and confess that sin, but just because you repented and confessed doesn't mean that it's going to fix itself all of a sudden. And I grew up with this notion that if you really repented, if you truly repented of that sin, then you're not going to do it again. And I heard it from the pulpit. I thought that was how the Christian life went. So I might have a problem fudging the truth sometimes. Maybe somebody asks me something and I don't quite tell the whole truth. And then I walk away from that conversation and I'm like, why did I do that again? Why did I say it quite like that? And so I confess that sin. That's an element of repentance. And then I do it again. So does it mean I wasn't forgiven? And that's what I was told previously that you weren't really forgiven. What I didn't understand at the time was that repentance and faith both have depth to them. They're not like light switches you turn on and off. They have depth. That's why the Christian faith is a, is a journey. You have to grow in your faith. 
There are elements of faith as a young child that you believe in God and you trust Jesus and the world makes sense. And so in the Presbyterian world, we talk about nurturing our children, raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teaching them the Lord's Prayer, teaching them the catechism. And we would often say, I've said, and you probably have heard, Lord, I pray that my kids grow up and never know a point at which they did not know Jesus. It's a completely different dynamic than what I grew up with. But even at that, there comes points in the teenage years where life gets confusing. Things don't make sense. And you have to re-up. You have to go deeper. You have to understand your faith more. And those of you who are older now look back on your teenage years and you're like, God, I'm so thankful I don't have to go through that again. But now you're at a different stage, aren't you? And it requires a different element of faith. You get married. That requires a completely different element of faith and dynamic in your life. You have children. Those children grow up, and they go through the same things that you went through. And you're looking at this, and Lord, help me in this stage to continue to trust you. And that's why I started out with the suffering that Paul goes through. Because your faith deepens in the crucible of suffering. You have to go through Death and resurrection in the course of your Christian life to grow. The same thing's true with repentance. I'm constantly amazed at how I circle back around with repentance. And I think, okay, I really understand why I'm doing this. And then the Lord reveals something else in my heart that I didn't quite get. When I was wrestling with that, I would think I turned away from it, because repentance means turning away. But if I really, really meant repentance, then I would really stop. What I've realized through the years is that there are stages. Yes, you have to confess your sin. That's an element of repentance. There are some people who never confess their sin. There are some people who have never stepped through a bulletin together with the confession of sin in it. We live in a culture that does not like to name that. But we all have these aspects in our life that we call sin, where we have been hurt or hurt other people, where we have been wounded or we have wounded other people, where we haven't loved properly, and we have to confess that. But confessing it, forgive me for my anger, Lord, is one step. Stopping it, of course, is another, but there's probably different stages of that stopping, I think at certain moments in my Christian life when I was really excited about certain things, I felt like I could stop and I felt like it was the grace of God. Really, it was probably all my passion bound up in it. And then later on, it kind of pops back up because I didn't deal with the root issue. Larry Crabb and and numerous others will use the illustration of an iceberg for the Christian life and the water level at which you're at. Because the majority of the icebergs under the water, you don't see it. And what we do as Christians is we stay right on the water level. And we say, oh, I got angry again. I'm so sorry that I did that. And we never look at why this ongoing struggle happens and what's at the root of it. Where did it come from? Why is it that this is the particular sin I'm struggling with? And we don't ask those questions, but true repentance is an ongoing process. I had them put a quote in the bulletin. Um, It's at the beginning, if you look for just a moment. 
It's a quote by Martin Luther. It's on page four. It is one of my favorite quotes. And I want to end this part of the the sermon on with this quote and reflection on it. Martin Luther said, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but healing. It's not being, but becoming. It's not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. That was the messing element of the early stages of my Christian life. I did not see things as a process. I did not see it as a journey. Whether I misunderstood it or it was said incorrectly or all the above, I thought the Christian life was, I have faith, boom, I'm in, I don't, I'm not going to hell, all is good. But that's not the way it works. You are on a journey a journey of faith, a life of faith. And it's not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's a process. It's not health right now, but healing. And so if you look at it that way, it will help you in all sorts of areas because we're all in the process of healing. We're all in the process of growing It's an ongoing stage, which is why when Luther posted his 95 Theses in the Protestant Reformation, one of the key points was this issue of repentance. I didn't know until years later that what I was hearing in the church I grew up in about repentance was exactly medieval Roman Catholicism. And Luther said, all of life is repentance. It's not one point at which you can look back and go, oh, I got it there. That's not the Christian faith. The whole totality of your life is a life of ongoing faith and repentance. As Luther says, you are not yet what you shall be, but you are growing toward it. And that's why this message we call the gospel. That's really good news. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that as we've looked at this first section of 2 Timothy 3.16, and reflected upon what you're teaching us, that you would encourage our hearts for this journey of faith. Each person here has faced something different this week. Each person here has faced something different in the course of their life. Each person here looks at you and the word of God that you've given us in slightly different ways because of their pain and suffering. And I would pray that you would take what was said this morning in terms of how we should believe and how we should live and let this be part of their healing so that they can in turn love others in the way that you love them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.